Welcome to episode 154 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm overheating in Hammersmith with Mark <laughs> Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today in the RBP sauna is Richard Morton Jack. Hi, Richard. Hello. <laughs> Richard has just published a monumental life of Nick Drake. So we're going to ask him about the book. We'll also hear clips from Chris Welch's 1985 audio interview with Steve Marriott. But let's briefly go back to the start of your arcane musical obsession <laughs> Richard <laughs> uh, and how they led to the wondrous flashback magazine uh, not to mention Sunbeam Records what got you into music in the first place and then sort of led to your particular fascination with you know psychedelia and other obscure musical subgenres? where did it start for you I always liked music so I don't think that's anything unusual to me but when I was small I always liked classical music like the Nutcracker and Swan Lake and I realised looking back that they were the pop music things in classical music and I definitely didn't like opera and things that I might have started liking in the classical genre as I grew older I just got drawn more towards the Beatles and so on and this was in the 1980s I suppose and the big catalyst for a lot of my musical enthusiasm which I'm very grateful for is that when I was about 10 glam metal came in and that is just a brilliant gateway drug <laughs> um, are we talking like sunset strip Mo- hair metal absolutely so I was, exactly so i was 10 in 1988 and re- very ready for that ready for poison and these guys were like cartoon characters and they were obviously from another planet as far as i was concerned and their music was quite fun to read about and their lives were wild and there were lots of obscure references on their on the inlay cards to their tapes that completely foxed my friends and me and so (laughs) and the music's fun and superficial and easy and there's no kind of existential angst in there it's all just crude rock and roll really so that was my big and and from there it was a good way to go backwards as well because say what you like about glam metal but those guys loved the Stones and the Who and yeah, the yeah. New York Dolls and the Stooges and Zeppelin and the Kiss and Aerosmith. Yeah. So they were always mentioning other people. But in those days, in those days, it was quite hard to find a lot of music. It was a bizarre period between vinyl and the preeminence of CD and cassette was the main format, really. And certain albums, which are really famous, just were not obtainable. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading in a frenzy when I got my hands on a copy a book I can't even remember who it's by Stephen Davis I think called Stairway to Heaven which is a his was I think Hammer of the Gods wasn't it you're absolutely right Hammer of the Gods and it was a fairly nasty mean spirited volume but um, (laughs) great reading and Jimmy Page made one of the greatest remarks uh, in in the history of music about that book when he said or he's alleged to have said that he'd read the first couple of pages and then thrown it out of the window into the moat Um, (laughs) (laughs) oh Spinal Tap is born in that moment (laughs) the moat definitely where it belongs but it was um, (laughs) it was full of interesting stuff and physical graffiti I really wanted to hear. I mean, I'd read this book and I knew that songs like Cashmere and Trampled Underfoot were out there. Mm-hmm. There's no YouTube, obviously. Just couldn't hear it. And it was, I tried to order it and it was only available as a double tape on special order. And the shot at HMV was, oh, we can't get it. It's not, it's, they don't have it in stock. And what year so was that? Of, what year that would have been 1990. 
You could. It's extraordinary to say. You couldn't get physical graffiti. No, and if you didn't know someone who had it, it right. was just you, you. There's no way to hear Mythical. it. Mythical. Mythical. So <laughs> I was just really eager to hear and to absorb more of this stuff, and it wasn't out there. So that's another thing that fed my interest in music was just this real interest in in stuff that I knew existed but that I couldn't hear and of course that makes you all the more curious to hear it and then when I was about 13 I had a friend made a friend whose older brother I mean older brothers are the unwritten heroes the of lifeblood of music and films <laughs> and all the rest of one, it so. right it was I on did, my own Richard I, I did very very much other people's older brothers though as well other people's <laughs> older brothers doesn't matter Correct. whether it's your older brother no. it probably helps if it isn't find me an older brother now <laughs> yes so my friend's older brother used to had just been backpacking around India and his hobby, and he was about 19, this guy, when we were about 13, was going to the Notting Hill Record and Tape Exchange and buying albums with weird covers and seeing if he liked them. And you could buy albums for a quid or two mm-hmm. in the sort of late 80s, early 90s still. I mean, God, these things were only 15 or 20 years old then, you know, now yeah. they seem like Victorian relics. But he had made himself compilation tapes of songs he liked. And so Michael, my friend, had these tapes and they had one of them I remember the label written in his brother's handwriting just said spirit smoke strawberry alarm clock and things like that and another one you're not going to ignore that no another one said silver apple seeds 13th floor elevators so this was at 13 I was lucky so we were just listening I remember the first time I heard you're going to miss me Michael had one earphone and I had the other and we were just going this is fucking brilliant Um, and we were quite young so that was quite lucky and then you know from there the doors were open for me for Beefheart and so on. So yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was, but it was always a question of having to chase down these records. And 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 I was quite, I'm quite, I think on on the one hand, I'm really jealous of young people today who can just type stuff into YouTube and immediately hear anything, and that is incredible. But it also makes you a bit blasé and a bit quick to judge what you do and don't like because obviously. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're exactly and, yeah, yeah, because yeah, you know, we'd have to track down these records, and even if you didn't kind of like them, you sort of forced yourself to to sort of like them because you'd spend yes. quite a lot of money on them, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I remember the, the glory when people like Demon started reissuing, like all the Al Green albums started mm. coming out. And Demon, it's like at last one can lay your hands on this, this yes. stuff, you know? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because the way in which albums like his were released over here was so scrappy Absolutely. back in the day they'd sort yeah, of yeah. knock two albums into one or uh, yeah. not bother with one album at all yeah, and then lose tracks and all sort of yes. stuff yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. so weirdness beckoned and you went down a sort of rabbit hole yes and that ended up yes I that suppose ended up so. a flashback magazine yes which not never knowingly put an act on the cover that anyone had ever heard of which was just fantastically brave yeah, well, well you'd heard of them sales obviously. was never the goal but <laughs> <No>. um <laughs> but Sam um, Gopal Sam what, Gopal exactly yeah, what, yeah. what was your print run on average for flashback 2000 right yeah but it wasn't really didn't make sense to print fewer than that no sure it probably would have saved me a couple of logistical problems <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for listeners who don't flashback, I mean, because it's strapline is psych, prog, jazz, folk, blues, and beyond! Exclamation mark. So, what was what was the inception of flashback? I'd gathered so much esoteric information, and also, like you, I'm, I'm very interested in print in in the rock press, and very aware of how much gold lurks in in the old magazines and newspapers from the 60s and 70s that that hasn't properly been sifted and so I would come across fantastic articles that I knew no one had ever seen Mm -hmm. and photographs and stuff 
And my feeling, which isn't at all controversial, I don't think, is that the best of anything in the arts isn't necessarily recognised quickly. And in fact, things which are hugely successful in the short term often don't make it beyond a decade of enthusiasm for the wide world. So I feel quite strongly that a lot of really valuable Mm -hmm. music has not been, the stories haven't been told and would never be told. This makes me sound a bit self-important, but (laughs) without... (laughs) saying to these people look there's a magazine which purely exists in yeah, order yeah. to write a 30 page article about a single that no one ever bought but there's a whole story there which is really interesting and that potentially people will be glad of in the future sure. because for me the incredible explosion of pop music in the 60s and 70s still hasn't been properly come to terms with and the rubble is still falling down around us really yes. and, um, and I think it's going to be too late to find out who some of these people were. So that was my fundamental driver, was trying to create a a space in which one could go into proper depth about deserving albums and artists that would otherwise potentially always be a mystery. Sure. Well, good for you. Good for you. Funny enough, I got an email from Richie Unterberger this morning, who I know has contributed to Flashback. Yeah. He's, he'll be sitting in this room in about three weeks doing some research. Oh, brilliant. I'm doing an event writers. with him at um, Blackpast oh, in Oxford. About oh, great. About Nick. Nick. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, that's, that should be excellent. So is, I'm kind of inferring or assuming that Flashback is, is sort of slightly on hold, partly because of you went down the Nick Drake rabbit yes, hole. And absolutely. And that must have consumed your life for, I mean, years. For a while. Yeah. Yes. So is Flashback... What is the status of this incredible magazine? Well, it was only, it was never it was always a, a what's the word when something's not there's an obvious word it was always a, a, an occasional an occasional yeah um, <laughs> and so I haven't stopped doing it no it, but it takes full concentration so I do have the next few articles sitting there okay but I need to tie it together funnily enough the thing that I really disliked and I now think with a bit of distance why did I bother is reviews I mean I felt that you have to have reviews so but getting reviews is such a pain mm-hmm. and you have to chase people and then yeah. and I, don't, I don't like saying things are good or bad it just seems really glib to uh, me I must say in, in my job uh, proofreading rocks back pages the thing I least like proofreading are reviews I mean occasionally you'll find something which I'll, one of which I'll talk about later you'll find something which is absolutely kind of mind-blowingly good but mostly it's like you know what are these things for in a curious kind Absolutely. of way? Absolutely. And that, yes, I, I agree. And star ratings don't get me started. Oh, the, um, the, the, the Rolling Stone three and a half star review yeah. is just that. Yeah. The story is that when Jan Wenner came in to tell Paul Nelson, the late Paul Nelson, that they were instigating a star rating system, Paul said, that's the end of rock journalism right there and walked out, resigned. And I think it's been the end of ballet and opera and <laughs> literary criticism and all sorts of other things yeah it's, so it's really reductive. sad because most people just see the star rating and if it's a two star they don't bother reading it if it's a five star rating they don't bother reading yes. it yes right but everything is as but do people like make decisions to read or listen or go to things based on reviews um, I think in general I mean, I mean when there was very little other information back in the 70s mm. something like the, if you became an enemy reader there were certain writers whose 
taste you broadly yes, yeah, tru- I mean, then, but, but yeah. now? I mean, but, I guess for, for theatre and stuff, people, people, if it gets good reviews, people might be more likely to go and see yes. it. But for music, I mean, it's much quicker just to look it up and listen to it than well, it is. Well, because it's instantly accessible. Exactly. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when an album comes out, for example, that everyone raves about and you sort of think, mm, what's all the fuss about? It's quite interesting to read a writer that you respect and say, well, what, what does she or he make of, of this album? For me, I mean, I'm interested to know whether they think it's good or is it just me who doesn't think it's that great? Yes. Anyway, so the next issue of Flashback, whenever it comes out, will not contain any reviews. No, it will not contain any reviews. <laughs> and that will make... Unless there's a fascinating book which Who's Richie or someone else wants to write a huge piece about. And then, of course, it becomes a piece rather than just book, a review. I think book reviews make more sense, partly because you don't have instant access to the book in the way that you do to the music. So actually having... you know, I used to subscribe to the London Review of Books and... Mm for the reviews but they're really substantial they're big but they're basically pieces. my bedside table my stack of unread London <laughs> reviews but, although I really enjoy them yeah. it's exhausting they arrive too quickly <laughs> I, but, yeah, I'm afraid I let myself there are too many books being published yes. that's the problem <laughs> <laughs> but Mellow Candle are going to be on the front cover as the next oh, issue well, and I've got all, they're, they're the scrapbooks of the members and because um, they were a rural not rural but they were an art they were a convent school in in outside Dublin so their school magazine reviews of their early concerts and so on are absolutely wonderful and um, there's lots of material so yes Mellow Candle are an example for me of because the whole Irish yeah let's not even go there but the Irish <laughs> pop scene in the 60s and 70s is a fascinating micro climate and um, so that's something I want to well their name well. came up in the last but one podcast we did funnily enough when Cliff it. Jones was yes. here and I remember him coming to the Mojo office with the Mellow Candle album yeah <laughs> so that will be interesting Let me ask you this. How did you go from the remarkable saga of the Blossom Toes on the summer 2014 cover of Flashback to Nick Drake, the relatively unobscure Nick Drake? How did that happen? Well, I'm trying to think of a, of a passageway between those two mm. things, but it's just sort of having different balls in the air, really. I, I also, allied to all of the things we've been talking about, started putting out records in 2005, I think, something like that. On Sunbeam. Yeah. On Sunbeam, which with very much the same idea that, that you could tell the story of this music in a nice booklet and you could add unreleased material that the artists might have in the attic or that hadn't surfaced for whatever reason and make the music available. Often these records were fetishised and very expensive. So Nick Drake was someone that I was curious to explore further anyway like most people I find him quite an interesting enigma and I know Callie Callerman of old who's a fellow traveller in these esoteric realms I remember going to stay with Callie in about 2005 or something in Suffolk he lives in the middle of nowhere and him just booming out a song called Mother No Head by Group 1850. Who were also on the cover of one of my (laughs) magazines. But, you know, and I remember thinking, God, this is the best music possible. And so Callie and I have always enjoyed sending each other esoteric things, but Callie manages Nick's estate. And when they put out a compilation called Family Tree, which is home recordings, 
on CD, I said to Callie, can I do the vinyl, which he gave me permission to do. So then I got to know Gabrielle a little. And then when they did the Remembered for a While book, which is the fantastic compendium of photographs and memories and diary extracts and reviews, I wish every artist had a a Remembered for a While book which combines all of the professional type stuff with personal yeah. school boy letters and so on. It's just a very interesting way to immerse yourself in an artist and contextualise the work with the life. I helped with that, supplying the sort of things that, as you know, are mouldering in old copies of Friends or whatever. But as soon as I had the finished Remembered for a While book in my hand, which is a huge book, I thought flicking through it that this deserved to be converted into a conventional biography as well because it was non-linear and it was deliberately non-linear and I said to Gabrielle and Callie look there's a biography here and they said they've always turned down their policy was always to turn down biographies of Nick and there'd been approaches from some very reliable writers but they said it's simply that Nick is amorphous and everyone has their own relationship to Nick and their own idea of who he was as do we 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 don't Mm -hmm. know him any better than any of you do really and even for Gabrielle he's a bit of a puzzle yes so she said if we start saying this is the family endorsed estate endorsed life it will go too far towards creating a, a fixed image that that isn't necessarily right. and also the magic of Nick is in the mystery really and if people start thinking well this is the definitive version it diminishes the individual's yeah response to it which is where a lot of the power is for them. And the same goes for a film. They're always being asked to license his likeness and music for films or for even musicals. And I think they think the same thing. If if people start thinking this is the Nick Drake, then right. you lose a bit of right. the mystery. And so, so I persisted by saying to Gabrielle, look, if you don't allow this, though, the mistakes and the misapprehensions, which are already absolutely legion, yeah. are just going to become history. And for me, the heart of the project about Nick is is my conviction that he's not going to cease to be of interest. I think in, like the Beatles, let's say, no one could deny Uh that in 500 years' time, if we're all here, the Beatles will (laughs) still be of great cultural interest and musical interest. And I, I think Nick, I'm not comparing him to the Beatles, but I think he's in that space. I can see a world, nothing personal, but I can see a world in in which, just looking over Mark's shoulder, (laughs) Kiss or Elton John won't be of right. interest in 500 years time maybe they will I, who knows well, but I think Nick I'm quite confident will be because I think he's a certain he's good of his sort you know he's a he's a, a, a well, lightning it's rod it's also significant how his popularity's increased dramatically long after his death yes uh, and and so there's a sort of permanence about that which you, you wouldn't say about a current artist i think so if he'd if he had sold millions of records during his lifetime then one would say well he's popular now because he always was yes yeah. people have found their grandparents copies of his records in I, their loft, I, I, I don't know if you read neil kulkana's review of the box set that came out a few years back and neil loves nick drake hates the influence he's had that every ghastly busker you hear in the south bank <laughs> is sort of you know is 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 doing their version of Nick's breathy voice and so on and so forth. It's a really, it's a great review. You should, like, if you haven't read it, you should really read it. It's right, Richard. Given how important Patrick Humphreys's early biography was to the you know the, the renewed interest in Nick's music and life, is it fair to ask what Gabrielle 
thought of that? What were the family's feelings about Patrick's biography? Um, I think it would be fairer to ask Patrick, whom I'm in contact with, and he's been nothing but a gentleman towards me throughout my yes. writing process. But I can paraphrase. Patrick wanted to do it with the family's involvement, of course, and t- tried to. And he sought Joe's Joe Boyd's input. But as I was saying earlier, their blanket response was no. Right. So Patrick persisted because he quite rightly felt that there was space for such a book. Mm -hmm. But without being obstreperous or going out of their way to prevent his progress, the family didn't, and and, and the Nick's estate didn't facilitate Patrick's book. Mm. So, but nor did they ring around everyone saying, if you speak to him, we'll never speak to Mm. you again. But Joe didn't speak to Patrick. Gabrielle didn't speak to Patrick. If Gabrielle doesn't speak to you, then you don't speak to Nick's cousins because you don't right. know who they are. Right. And you don't speak to Nick's family, friends, yeah. children because you don't know who they are. So there's a whole raft of individuals yeah. who have memories that aren't... So Patrick's book, I think hamstrung is too strong a word, but as Patrick was and is aware, there were huge gaps where right. he had to connect dots and the picture at mm-hmm. the end wasn't as no, clear sure. as it might have been. No, 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 no. Um, no. You had access to, to the family archive, essentially. Mm. And the family kept so much stuff. Do you think that was very fortunate that because, possibly because of the way in which he died, the family felt the need to ha- hold on to all the letters and the correspondence and so on and so forth? Yes. And you had a full access to it. I did have full access to it. I, I, I think, um, I don't know if it's a social class thing or I don't know what, but the Drakes corresponded on paper yeah um sorry there was no other way to correspond was there in those days they they wrote letters to each other and they kept both sides of the correspondence so nick although he was fairly chaotic and disorganized as young people are kept letters i don't know which letters he didn't keep obviously but he kept letters and even living in a dismal bedsit surrounded by ashtrays and detritus he kept letters. Right. Interesting. So, and he brought them back home with him and presumably shoved them in his desk or his drawer at home and eventually marrying those up with the letters that, that yeah. came back or, or, or that prompted them, you get you get a real sense of the correspondence and of what they're talking about. Mm. That's, I mean, I didn't include nearly all of it in the book, but for example, uh, Nick didn't accept a wedding invitation in 1970 from a family friend sorry, didn't reply to a fam- to a wedding invitation. So his mother wrote him a letter saying, Nick, it's so important to reply promptly. <laughs> and a prompt refusal is far better than a, uh, you know, later, late acceptance and all the rest of it. Mm. You've got to be, you know, this not good manners. And this was when Nick was recording Pink Moon. You know, we're talking in one sense about a great artist, but at the same time to his mum, he was just a... Naughty know, boy. A, a naughty boy. <laughs> Although, of course, she saw his artistry too. Yeah. But So the letters are really illuminating yeah, yeah. in tiny ways. And the Drakes, I think, as a, as a family tendency, kept stuff. Yes. So yeah, um, not that they, I think, lived in a cluttered environment, but, but they, they saw the value in keeping odds and school I, reports. I, I think it was it. a lot more common, you know, my parents, middle class parents, when they died, when they respectively died, we found masses of our family correspondence have been kept it's, it was a sort of thing that one did I yes think. yeah i think that's probably true yeah. richard can we for any listeners who you know don't know that much about nick drake contextualize what what he meant in in in, in terms of being part of that stable at which season joe boyd fairports john and beverly martin so forth 
where does Nick fit into that little ecosystem and, and where does he not fit into it? Nick encountered Joe Boyd purely by chance. He had been hustling to a small extent, so there wasn't a sense that the image of Nick, just everything happening to him mm-hmm. rather than him making it happen, has been slightly overstated. But Nick met Joe by chance, having already tried to get deals with various other producers. And Joe immediately saw the brilliance in Nick, for which Joe deserves all of our gratitude, if we like Nick. And Joe had a production company with a deal with Polydor Records. Um, and the Incredible String Band were Joe's biggest asset. This is in January 68. And the Incredible String Band, I, I think it's really hard to understand now. I've learnt this through old newspaper articles and so on, <laughs> and through the memories of those who were there. Mm-hmm. But the Incredible String Band were almost seen as the next, in terms of quality and talent and originality, the next big thing after the Beatles in certain quarters. They were taken really yeah, they seriously. They really were, yeah, it's true. And, they were pretty and, big and in America, weren't they? They were. Yeah, yeah. And, and in although they're so crazily esoteric that most people now find them unlistenable um, at the time they were just so out out there on a limb and their songs were so well constructed and so strange and so exotic Mm. that other songwriters and other young people took them very seriously so I think because The Incredible String Man were very much Joe's discovery and creation in, in certain ways Nick was able to you know, probably knew who Joe was and knew, but equally because Joe was had this hot property on his hands, mm-hmm. I think Nick slightly got lost. So Joe was happy to allow Nick the freedom to record Five Leaves Left while he was at Cambridge and to come to the studio intermittently rather yeah, yeah. than having to have one block of sessions to make the whole album, which suited Nick brilliantly. But Joe's Witch Season company was very hectic. Yeah, yeah, flying by the seat of its pants, and I think. That suited Nick in one sense, but equally it was easy to get lost in it and Nick wasn't one to push himself forward. And eventually when Nick got signed to Ireland, Mm -hmm. Joe's moved his operation from Polydor to Ireland later in 1968. And so again, completely inadvertently, Nick found himself on Ireland, which had, at the end of 1967, radically reshaped itself away from being folk music, rugby songs, jazz, calypso, ska, all sorts mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. Chris Blackwell had decided in the summer of 67, effectively, let's become a rock and roll label and let's do Spooky Tooth, Traffic. Yeah, yeah. Steve Winwood was obviously the big Spooky host. Spooky Tooth, as Chris says. Does he say Spooky? Spooky. How funny. Spooky Tooth. I know. He's tough. <laughs> That's so funny. Does he? So, Spooky Tooth and Co. Were, <laughs> I'm going to say that from now on. Chris Blackwell says it, that's what they're called. <laughs> it's, it's the Horovian pronunciation. Right. Um, so Nick found himself on Ireland, and, and Chris Blackwell was, of course, amazingly uninterested yeah. in whether or not records sold. Obviously, he preferred them to. Yes. Um, it's a marvellous quality, but not great if you're the person making the record. No, absolutely. But it does at least mean that the record gets put out, yeah. and no one says to you, we like it, but it needs some phasing on it mm. and it needs a bit of mandolin. Needs a single. Yes, it needs <laughs> yes. a single, all this sort of stuff. Chris's attitude to Nick and indeed to all his other artists was, we think you're great, 
So do what you're Go away and make thing. a record, yeah. Exactly. And we'll put it out as you want it to be put out. And that's a rare thing then and now. And I think you know, potentially Nick would have benefited from a more robust interventionist um, right. producer yeah, yeah, and yeah. manager. But at the same time, who's to say? He also didn't really like playing live very much, does he? He struggled with live performance. Is that it, fair to say? It is fair to say. I mean, again, it's it's been really hard to unpick that. And I, what I tried to do, of course, and I know Barney's well used to this process, is put myself into the moment and try to think and imagine how things were perceived then rather than with hindsight. And, of course, Nick didn't enjoy live performance, mm-hmm. but he didn't hate it. I think he just gradually realised it wasn't stage fright. It wasn't, I, I I'm just want the earth to swallow yeah. me up every time an audience looks at me. I don't think there was that at all. I think, to an extent, he wanted to show his feathers. He yeah, knew yeah, he was yeah. good. He knew he was commanding yeah. he, he was well used to being told that in private by audiences in in rooms in cambridge and so on i think that wasn't it wasn't a, a, a case of purely hating performing i think it was more a creeping sense of the complete pointlessness of performing the songs that he had written in front of audiences who didn't know the material already and mm-hmm. weren't interesting it's just not arresting music at a first listen no reading particularly about you know, like performances in sort of working man's clubs in the yeah. north he just was was not suited to that they did not want to hear his his songs at all but he was, he was it was really quite traumatic for him I think. he did quite he supported people at large venues on, on occasion he played the Contrast with John Martin, who relished playing live, uh, loved the process mm-hmm. of being on the road and all of that sort of stuff. And in, in a way, in those days, you had to do that to get people to listen to you. You know, there was what maybe two radio programs made at a push play, you know, John Peel or whoever. Yes. So the only way of actually being heard was to go out on the road. Uh, and I think it really served John Marston well, the fact he loved the process. Mm. Absolutely. But they were so different, weren't they? I mean, they were chalk and cheese, John and Nick. As and personalities, yes. yeah. Yeah, yes. and also kind of in some ways musically. I mean, because when I think back to the 70s, I bought Solid Air when it came out. It was the first John Martin album, and, and absolutely fell in love with it. When I first heard Nick Drake, it was a tougher sell for me. I wasn't ready for Nick. And I and I think, now, what was that about? Why? And there was something in John's music that was soulful and quite sexy, and there was a kind of swagger to that, to his playing and his singing. It was sensual. And when I first heard, like, you know, whatever the first album was, it, it somehow seemed... It, it was too cerebral for me. Yeah. Now... I don't feel quite the same way. I still find the voice quite... You talked about the breathiness of the mm. voice. To me, that's still mm. slightly too cerebral. It's not uh, sensual enough. But the guitar playing and the musical structure and the... I mean, all of that, I'm now absolutely yeah. uh, in awe of. Uh, the question is, is there a gender difference in terms of the people who, at the time, stuck with, were, were liking Nick's stuff? Do women like his stuff more than men? That's a really interesting question. I wish I knew the answer to it. One of the things I was very open to when I wrote the book was speaking to people who had bought his records at the time mm-hmm. and understanding their reasons for having done so sure. and, and their responses to him. There are a few fan letters. Some are from girls, some aren't. I don't know enough on that subject right. to comment. Yeah. But I think he was a, more of a subject of curiosity in general during his lifetime than is realised and than I, th- than I think he realised. I think it's interesting to speculate how 
popular a concert by him would have been towards the end of his life, four years since he had last performed and he right. had really disappeared from view. Yes. But I, I think there was more interest and curiosity surrounding him than is acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, fundamentally, yeah. he, he was not in a state to perform and, and wouldn't have done so. Sure. And also curiosity isn't really the same thing as, like, fervent adoration, right? There's a, there's a big difference between being curious to see what someone might be like and being excited to go and see them, mm. isn't there? Mm. There is. But I think for Nick and, and for people now, I think the great thing has always been, as I was mentioning earlier, that personal connection with his music. And a lot of mm. people who love, who love his music love it because they feel, in a sense, that it's quite rare for any artist a real sense that th he's mine this is my personal mm -hmm. communion with his record right yeah and i love black sabbath but i think if me if i if i'm to black sabbath the next person on the tube sitting next to me is also listening to black sabbath we're on exactly the same page we're listening to it for the same reasons and we've got the same relationship with it we know exactly what it is and both of us and i think with nick there's a wide spectrum of right. engagement with yeah. his music mm. and some people find pink moon which has you all know, of course, is, is just him and his guitar, yeah, really, yeah. and it's a much more direct recording. Some people find that so bleak that they can't listen to yeah, it. Yeah, Some mm -hmm. people find it uplifting and, and joyous. And well, I love the bleakness. I yes. Mean, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's not too paradoxical. Yes. Bleakly uplifting. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's one of the great bleak masterpieces, yes, I think. Yes, but um, there are people out there who simply don't find it bleak. There, there yeah. are one or two songs in it that are bleak, but overall they find it... Happy, yeah, I, I, I was always, well, there is happiness. Yeah, I, yes. was, I was very much, you know, five leaders of that sort of I mean, I, I love the arrangements. So, it was, it was, remind me of the name of his, his Robert Kirby. That's right. Mm. His arrangements were, I think, Fantastic. astonishing. When your day is done, down to earth and sinks the sun, along with everything that was lost and won. When the day And also, the, the, they were all recorded down Old Church Street in Chelsea. Yes, Sound Techniques. Uh, Sound Techniques, yeah. where they made beautiful-sounding records. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, they, there were certain things in place of really good engineers, really good... Well, a really uh, good engineer. A really I mean, good I mean, engineer. Um, yeah. Nick, Nick was... Another piece of serendipity for Nick was, A, Sound Techniques, but yes. B, its proprietor and engineer yeah. was John Wood who, who got Nick in the same way Joe did uh, uh, and was very good at recording instruments that a lot of other people struggle with actually acoustic instruments are hard to yes. record you know they just are yes. you know, they, they require a great deal of knowledge and, and the room and all this sort of yeah. stuff mm. comes in mm. and they're astonishingly good sounding records yeah, and they're live yeah. they are yeah. Yeah. yeah to an extent recorded live yeah. those albums and Brighton I mean reading your book thinking about Nick Drake again the contrast between the second album, Brighter Later, and the last album, Pink Moon, seemed starker than ever. I mean, they could almost be by sort of different artists because there's, there's all these extraordinary players yeah, on yeah, Bright, yeah. Brighter Later. Yeah. And, they, I mean, almost no expense spared, right? There were, Joe yes. got quite a lot of really top mm -hmm. session people mm. in. And then, you know, on Poor Boy, you can hear Doris Troy wailing away <laughs> in the background. Yeah. That wonderful, yeah, yeah. like, Poor Boy's so sorry for himself. Yeah. I mean, I love your description of Nick sitting in the studio listening to them singing this, this yes. backing vocal, taking kind of the piss out of himself, yes. basically.
I like the I would I, I almost prefer the idea that they came up with that that line about him being so sorry for himself. Yeah. <laughs> it would be really funny and it just yes. go, yeah, you're right. I, I really I, like the the comparison but I find it really interesting the comparison between John Martin and Nick Drake because what you're sort of saying is that maybe the first time you hear Nick Drake, he doesn't really take you with him. Whereas John Martin kind of, it's that equally personal songs. They're equally moving. And, but, but what they do is they kind of say, look, I'm here and I'm going to bring you with me on my journey here now. That's what John Martin does for me. Mm. Whereas Nick Drake is kind of like, he's on his own journey. And if you want to come with him, you really have to, kind of wait for him to let you in and let you let you go i don't know if that yeah, yeah, yeah i mean but the temperaments are so different i mean yeah. john, yeah. john I mean, was, was an was, extrovert pisshead i'm not sure we'd be talking about them in the same breath if they no, didn't have not. certain venn diagram I mean, crossovers were, in terms of producer and studio i, d- I don't think they're he, particularly well, I mean, sorry, there related was written about about nick drake it was, was it but not, from know. the perspective of john martin's ego really yeah. i mean it's not it's not really about nick but no i mean there is a fairly big overlap of the venn diagram in terms of First of all, the general genre they were both working mm. in, you know, as songwriters, primarily using acoustic instruments, being recorded by the same mm. people, and you know, and, yes. and so on. You know, so so it's a valid conversation. And let's not have. leave Beverly Martin out of this, because no. well, in some ways she was closer yeah. to Nick, I think, and probably yeah. understood Nick a little yes. better than John did. I'm sure we have to talk about his mental state. I haven't read the book yet, you know, I, I, I will, you know, as soon as I, I can. Is there any sort of diagnosis as to what was up with Nick? No. People tried then, mm-hmm. and of course reverse engineering diagnoses is... Um, fatal, sort of, Is yeah. fatal, yes. There's a very interesting book by a man called Russell Brain, which was published in the 1950s, um, I can't remember its title, but where he he was a distinguished doctor and he diagnoses various characters in literature. Oh, right. (laughs) Yes. Um, Especially in Dickens. And it's funny and interesting, but ultimately, of course, silly and futile because symptoms alone don't necessarily (laughs) point to something. And and yeah, that book came to mind when trying to work out what, what, what might have been wrong with Nick. I mean... No one knows. Perhaps he was schizophrenic. He was certainly suffering from a depressive illness. Yes. But I don't think anything caused it, quote unquote. I think certain things didn't help its trajectory. Right. And I don't think anything could have cured it, in inverted commas, either. Mm. It was just a tragedy. Mm. Yeah, and would he have lived longer if he was alive now, suffering that kind of depression, you know? I love the sort of descriptions of people like, John Beverly, but also Sandy Denny, just kind of feeling so exasperated by Nick. Which you, you were trying if, to get him to come out of his shell, yes. you know, and it's like, what's wrong with you? You're yeah. brilliant. You're on this label. Joe believes in you. Why can't you be more ambitious or just a little bit more outgoing? Absolutely. And of course, that sense of superficial social frustration that he had provoked in certain people was absolutely agonising for his family and close friends who who could see that there was something badly wrong, that mm. it wasn't just him being stuck up. Because he didn't come from an unhappy family. Quite well, the opposite. I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't really... It seems like they were but, very loving that, and supportive mm, That parents. doesn't... It, it, I know, it's not I know. a straight line. No, it's you, not a straight you, line. You know, it really isn't. I mean, 
you know, as uh, someone who suffered from depression myself, who came from an extraordinarily happy family, mm. you know, the, mm. the, 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 sure. it, it's, a, it's a different thing altogether. Yes. You know, it's not a consequence of your upbringing. It's actually the way your brain is wired. I had to teach myself, as I was writing this book, to stop trying to look at Nick's illness and look for causes and look for reasons. Yeah. And the point, really, is that Nick's behaviour, as of circa 1971, right. was absolutely irrational. It was as if his brain had been invaded by an enemy army, mm -hmm. uh, occupied, I mean, and very little that he said or did in that period was quote-unquote normal mm. or rational. Yeah. He'd say he was going to do something and then not do it, or he'd mm. do the opposite, or he'd do something completely bizarre, often involving violent outbursts. He was living at home, so his parents obviously bore the brunt, both of looking after him, but also of, of his frustration. Yes, sure. So there's been a certain tendency to assume that because he lashed out in his parents' direction, with his tongue, I, I mean, not, not, not mm. physically, that they must have therefore been a great source of his frustration. But instead, to me, they were just the focus. Yeah, right? yeah. So people say, well, of course, they sent him off to boarding school. That would have been it. Or they were posh and he was resented the fact that they had a housekeeper. Or, But actually, I think his parents created the best possible environment in which he could have been ill. <laughs> supportive not judgmental mm. encouraging yeah, even when he dropped out of cambridge you know they were not no they were as you know they were they were trying try to persuade him not to do yeah. that i mean but you they get an occasional not. letter from the father saying you know yeah. it would yeah. be a good idea of <laughs> yes but one has to remember the context of yeah. nick's yeah. letters yeah. father were, were a they were written out of love but b yeah. they were often responsive to letters nick had written saying yeah. i'm thinking of dropping out of cambridge what do you think dad yes they weren't just his dad you know, I, no, I mean, I've seen a bunch of reviews in the book. This happened, and Nick's father was just sort of sending off these pompous missives to yeah. telling his son what to do. And in fact, it was a dialogue, and Nick yeah. valued his parents' yeah. opinion. Yeah. That fell away towards the end, but not because Nick hated his parents' guts. It was because yeah. there was just this Occup need for Nick to have a yeah. lightning rod. Yes, or target. Frustration. Yes, yeah. 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 Can yeah. we briefly talk about, you know, how Nick was written about in the press? I mean, for a oh, long yeah. time, you know, the the, the the sort of consensus was there was only one interview he'd ever done, <laughs> which we have on RBP, which was Jerry Gilbert's uh, 1971 mm. interview with Nick, where he's, you know, pretty kind of diffident and non-committal, but it's, but it's, but it's interesting. He says to, to Jerry, I think the problem with, was with the material, which I wrote for records rather than performing. There were only two or three concerts that felt right and there was something wrong with all the others I did play one or two folk clubs in the north but the gigs just sort of petered out so he's talking about some of the mm. things we've touched on but of course reading your book one of the great revelations was he was interviewed There's another. in Jackie magazine <laughs> and I mean it's I mean one of the strange things about it I mean, he was sort of in a way archetypally tall dark and handsome wasn't he and you know girls found him very attractive but he didn't really respond. So he's in this, he's in Jackie magazine. And Jackie magazine was, for listeners that don't know, a kind of... It was a, girl, a, a girls girl magazine. magazine. And, and the, it was a sort of series called Sam, was Samantha, whoever the writer was. Sam talks to the good lookers. Yes. And so this month it's Nick Drake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pin up of the month. Tell us about this, this, how did you unearth, how did you stumble on this? Because it wouldn't have occurred to you to look in Jackie magazine for Nick Drake. Well, actually, actually you're wrong. <laughs> Um, <laughs> good, good. But no, Jackie was unbelievably 
popular. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And weirdly, the most popular magazines are often the rarest yeah. now. It, yes, that's people true. just threw, threw them, them away. away. Yeah, yeah. So you're more likely to find an obscure underground newspaper on eBay for yeah. sale than you are a copy of Jackie for, for a random week. That's absolutely right. It's a long game yeah, trying yeah. to find certain issues of things like that. So Jackie was, of course, mainly about how to clear up your acne and um, how to make your boyfriend sort of pay you more attention at parties and that sort of stuff. But it did have surprisingly broad and hip coverage of pop. Mm -hmm. I think, obviously, record companies weren't slow to recognise that the sheer readership numbers made it worth pursuing Jackie. But also... An unsung and very interesting personality in the history of pop is someone called Francis van Staden, who was the secretary for Ronan O'Reilly, who yes, founded Radio Caroline, Caroline yeah. and Major Minor Records yeah, yeah. and was very closely involved with, with pop in the 60s. And she was his close associate. And she also, when Caroline washed up, she founded her own independent PR company mm. for pop. And Witch Season was one of her clients but she had several, and mm-hmm. she was a great personal friend always of Sandy Denny's. So Francis placed in Jackie, who gave her just a brief to come up with enough, to, she just did a bit of PR for Jackie, mm-hmm. articles about a wide range of people, but John and Bev, incredible string band, you know, Joe's people, John Martin uh, on his all own got as into well. Jackie. We're all in Jackie. Right, okay. yeah. I wouldn't even have known that. And as were lots of other people. Huge pin-ups of caravan looking sort of hairy and, and mess and head. And <laughs> we're going to have to invest. Oh, you find... And they're proper mm. articles as well. Mm-hmm. Sid Barrett, they're proper interviews. Yeah, they're yeah. not just sort of yeah. tell us what your favourite, uh, you know, clothes sure. are for yeah, a girl. Yeah, yeah. They're proper interviews. And frustratingly, they are, as is the whole of Jackie, written under pseudonyms. So trying to find who the actual interviewer was is not easy. But when I found this interview with Nick and Jackie, it wasn't a surprise, but of course it was a joy. Yeah. And it's quite a good interview. It's quite revealing. Any words from Nick are illuminating because there are so few. But I wanted to know who Sam... I knew it was Samantha because quite a lot of Jackie is written by Samantha. It was this idea that she's the friendly big sister who's out there covering fashion and music and Mm -hmm. makeup and all sorts of things. So I got in touch with Nina Misko, who was... She was a little bit later, but she was writing for Jackie and she was super friendly and helpful and interested but she said unfortunately it wasn't me she said it might have been Keith Alton but he said no definitely wasn't me and I I hope that Samantha might be identifiable because who knows the tape might still be lurking somewhere it may be worth I could drop Dawn James a line because she may have known who Whoever it was, you know, knew what they were small, doing. It was a small world, the, yes. the women journalists writing about pop. But it may have been a man, of course. Well, of course yeah. it may have been a man, but it's a, there's a chance... Is Marina Grady still alive? I don't know. She's it's one your, of our writers. Your, um, it's your beat. Uh, maybe she, we could be worth asking her as well. Yes. I mean, they wrote for Rave, but Rave and Jackie were like... And Mirabelle were all like sister yes. papers to mm. one another. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I just thought it, you know, uh, of, of all, you know, the yes. publications mm. for the only other uh, Nick Drake marvellous. interview. Yes, <laughs> although, you know, of course, yeah. it, it for many years, as you say, yeah. and, and, and Jerry Gilbert, who wrote the interview for mm. Sounds, totally, understandably thought it was the only interview mm. but of course it opens a possibility that there's and a third and a fourth mm. I haven't seen them and yeah. not, but no one ever mentioned the Jackie one so to me so if Samantha's listening I just found it <laughs> yes <laughs> if she could exactly drop us a line here at Rock's Back Page but can I also pay, pay a brief tribute to Jerry Gilbert his interview with Nick was conducted under very unpromising circumstances when right. Nick was really staring at the table 
not saying anything. Mm. And Jerry managed to get out of what I understand was quite a long exchange, an hour or so. A um, teaspoon of words. A, a short but very sharp piece of writing mm-hmm. with mm. a lot of insight from Nick. And Jerry could easily have gone away from that and gone back to Sounds and said, there's, there's nothing no there. good, this Forget guy's a nightmare. Mm. And that article is of value. It, Jerry has tended to think, oh, well, it's a bit superficial and I didn't get anything out of him. But actually, Nick does make some pretty revealing remarks. Mm. And I asked Jerry if he still has the tape and Jerry said, well, it was shorthand. And he still has all of his notebooks and he said it's possible, but he said, trust me, I got all the blood out of the stone when I wrote that article. Right, 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 right. But thank, it's a, we're lucky it exists. Yeah, we're yeah. lucky it exists. I just want to briefly mention uh, two of the other pieces about Nick that we're featuring on the homepage. And one is Connor McKnight's piece in this issue of Zigzag. Yes. Uh, June 74, which is only, what, six months, five months before, yes. before Nick... Yes, and, and, and I tried to get in touch with Connor. Sadly, he, he's dead now. He was yes. Australian, and he was an IBM programmer. He just did moonlit as a as a, as a zigzag writer. Yes. But he was actually but the editor as of that issue. He took over editing it from Andy Childs. Andy but Childs. That, that article is long and has interviews with John Wood and Joe Boyd and, and Richard David Thompson Sanderson. and David Sanderson yeah. from yeah. the time of Nick's life, from exactly. while Nick was still alive. Connor tried hard to get Nick to speak, and Nick didn't respond. No. But Nick went out and bought that magazine and it's all in his Did father's he? diary. He read oh, it and he chucked it onto his... His father was in bed with a bad back and Nick chucked it onto his father's wow. bed at a time when he wasn't really talking at all okay. to anyone. And I haven't got to that no. in the book yet. So, so uh, it, it did have yeah. a beneficial effect for Nick to know that he wasn't That's forgotten. That's really interesting. Yeah. The last piece is this epic piece by the late Ian MacDonald from Mojo, January 2000, which was included in his collection, The People's Music. It's called Exiled from Heaven. I I, I think it's one of the greatest pieces ever written about popular music. I think it's an extraordinary piece. And Ian was at Cambridge with Nick. I mean, I don't think they knew each other terribly well, but there was some kind of interconnection there. So it's a very personal, beautiful piece about, you know, what music means spiritually so that's that's the last of, of well of the pieces. I, I, and, and i think it's important also to remember nick kent in february nick kent's piece yes february 75 nick kent felt a sense of outrage that nick's death in november 74 hadn't been remarked upon hadn't even been reported yeah. other than in sounds by jerry gilbert Indeed. so nick kent set out to present mm. An obituary come biography come rallying cry. Yes. Um, by speaking to a, people who had known Nick quite fresh after his death. So that piece is an important it's source, was an important right. source it's of requiem knowledge. Requiem for a solitary man. Exactly. Like yes. That. Yeah. 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 I mean, is there a point when his reputation started to gather sort of weight and steam? I, mean, I, th- I think the, the sad thing is, think? It, it, I think his death was. One of the catalysts. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, Nick Kent's piece. How many copies was the NME selling every week in February '75? Right. You know, and, and a huge number of people mm. would have read yeah, that yeah. or at least seen it and seen the photos and logged him. People are often seduced by that kind of tragedy. Yes, of course. And, and, and it's that's like Keats. Human it's nature. like Chatterton. It's James like Dean. Early yeah. romantic deaths. Exactly. Yes. I do also think the compilation that Joe put out in '85, "Heaven in a in a Wildflower,", Wildflower yeah. was that was was actually was sort of more my kind of initiation into Nick. Yes. I did buy that, and I started to understand what was great about Nick at that point. I think it's also interesting that in 1979, although it had been in the works for a lot longer the Fruit Tree box set was released. Now, that was quite soon after Nick's death. I think, although I'm obviously open to contradiction, that that, that that's the first box set that any artist 
who wasn't Frank Sinatra or Glenn Miller had ever had. Right. Wow. And for someone as obscure as Nick yeah. to have a box, which yeah. must have cost the equivalent of sort of 40 quid now or 50, you know, it was, yeah, yeah. was quite a statement from Ireland. Right. It wasn't just, you know, let's help his family to feel something nice about their late son. They, they understood that there was a market growing for yeah. this stuff. So I think that that process was ongoing. And we talk, I, I mentioned earlier that I wonder at the time of Nick's death if he underestimated how much interest there was in him. And I think that process quickly gathered pace. And in 1976, Five Leaves Left was released in America the, for the first time with elegiac notes by a guy called, called Bruce Malamut. Who's, who we have on Rock's Back Page. Just right. joined, has just joined. You know, get those liner notes. <laughs> so <laughs> Bruce's <laughs> liner notes are all respect to Bruce, whom I know, riddled with errors, but that's not his fault. Sure. It just indicates sure. what was known at the time and, and, and sure. how much guesswork there was. But his liner notes recognise Nick as something very unusual. And so I think that process was quite quickly underway. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. So listen, anyone listening who has the remotest interest in Nick Drake, do buy and read Nick Drake The Life by Richard Morton Jack has a forward by Gabrielle Drake Nick's sister and it is absolutely it's so absorbing it's a bit like sort of Peter Goralnik's kind of no stone unturned approach it's just the details are so gripping you, you, you really did your homework and I think it's a tremendous achievement thank so you thanks for talking to us about Nick you can say the sun is shining if you really wonder I can see the moon and it seems so clear you can take a road that takes you to the stars now I can take a road that will see me through I can take a road that will see me we're going to turn our attention to a very different legend of English <laughs> music now. Um, uh, and Mark's going to tell us about him uh, and the week's new audio. Yes, it's Chris Welch interviewing Steve Marriott of The Small Faces and subsequently Humble Pie. And then at the time of this interview taking place, a group called Packet of Three, the charmingly named Packet of Three. <laughs> uh, it's in uh, May 85. And, and it's really just the story of The Small Faces. He talks about meeting Ronnie Lane and Kenny Jones. They're all in different bands in East London, getting the small faces together. Jimmy Winston, who, oddly enough, many years later, I used to buy my recording equipment from. He ran a recording equipment <coughs> shop out of his garage in Woodford, so Jimmy Winston is someone I've actually encountered, absurdly enough. Early gigs, <laughs> Maurice King and uh, being the manager... Don Arden coming in and basically shoving Maurice King to one side and taking out the window. Actually, you know, Steve Marriott's very kind of oddly fond of Don Arden, even though Don Arden ripped them off rotten. First recordings, what you're going to do about it? He says the original version they recorded was so much better than the version released, which was a kind of cleaned up and saccharine version. The sacking of Jimmy Winston, Ian McClagan, the great Ian McClagan joining on keyboards. And, uh, well, let's listen to the first clip about the, how reluctant they were as pop stars. When you were pop stars? I, yeah, absolutely, which is horrible, which is something that I don't think we really ever wanted to be. You're not enjoying that then? No, well, you wouldn't enjoy it. No one would enjoy it if um, you had any integrity at all. Mm. And you also smoked a little hash, mm. and took a little pill or whatever, and to see all these little girls getting hurt, um, faces crushed, and and you couldn't even hear what you were doing, you were stunned. You just wanted to go, you just wanted to go home. 
it wasn't as... Oh, yeah. Too much. So I, I didn't like it. None of us liked it. We used to entice Paul and Barry Ryan into our limo so we could push them out first. Because they love to get mobbed. So we'd say, well, come on, mate, you come with us. We'd pull up to, say, Liverpool Empire, push them out, the carts would all dive in, and we'd just walk around them and get in, you see? So they were our decoy. <laughs> Paul and Barry decoy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much we need to believe of, uh, of some of that, but he just talks about touring with the Who, Australia and New Zealand with the Who, Keith Moon destroying hotel rooms and uh, uh, the, how much they rel- relished all of that sort of stuff. Then there's kind of the, the problem is they hated the fact that the screaming started. The screaming, they said, destroyed them as a performing band because, you know, you can't hear yourself play and the whole thing falls to pieces. Uh, and that led to them eventually becoming a studio-based band. And it, he talks later on in this interview about how the Beatles had the same thing, that the only s- solution was to retreat to the recording studio, um, which... And again, like, the, the Stones pretty much stopped for a year or so and then in 69 and they started again you know it, it's a pattern for a lot of these bands well listen on a clip this is the, the mystic Ronnie Lane um, Ronnie Lane was a sort of he became a Sufi but but even before he was a Sufi he was into his beads and whatnot. That's yeah awesome. and they took the piss out of him mercilessly yeah. <laughs> I know that I'm happy. Uh, but Ronnie got very strange. I mean, he was like <coughs> looking for a religion, which is awkward, really, for anybody, and uh, especially living with a bunch of piss artists like me and Mac and Kenny. Um, we burst into his room once when he was out, and he had a scroll on the wall that he said was his soul. We never saw him. He was in there all the time in his room, and he worshipped this peach and a daffodil. That was his some kind of giant Japanese religion. So we burnt the scroll, squashed his peach. I think <laughs> Mac ate the daffodil. Yeah, Ronnie came back and said, "You ruined my soul." You said, "Don't be a cunt. What's the matter with you? We're trying to do you a favour, mate." <laughs> Love is all around me, everywhere. Bullying the poor guy. So there we have it. Oh, yes, yeah, oh, very right. tolerant. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's interesting that Ronnie Lane then struggled with all the bands he's in to some extent and ended up sort of getting out of the faces and sort of starting his, his travelling circus sort of thing. I just get away from all this laddish behaviour. Well, think about the different trajectories of Steve ending up in forming Humble Pie yeah, yeah. in Frampton and, and, and Ronnie Lane going going off and living in a kind of gypsy caravan. Yes. I mean, it was just It was fantastic. there. It, it was there then. It was. Um, it was. They were so, so different. So, so he talks about leaving both Decca and Don Arden at the same time and hooking up with Andrew Lou Goldham and going on to, on to immediate. And he's, he's curious that, that even though all these people who managed him ripped him off, he's curiously deferential to them, even 
now. And then he was further ripped off in humble pie by who is that American bastard who managed them? And oh, D. D. Anthony. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horrible, you know, horrible mobbed up. D. Anthony. I mean, he says in this interview that he has he has never since 1985 has never received any royalties from any of the Small Faces hits, which included what three number one hits. Yeah, yeah. You would know Richard, but yeah, I mean, well, and obviously written by him ever, as well as performed. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah no. Part uh, it, 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 it was astonishing. Then he talks about Peter Frampton. He's basically sets out to put a band together for Peter Frampton and then can ask to join it and Peter Frampton's not sure he wants him and that became Humble Pie who I saw supporting Grand Funk Railroad in Hyde Park in 1971 and I have to say Humble Pie were fantastic that day they blew Grand Funk a mile off the stage I'm a big big (laughs) Steve Marrick fan so far as Tin Soldier at the age of 12 was just a massive record for me and that was the sound of a Wurlitz electric piano and a Hammond B3 and that was magic to to my the glow there's never been a more powerful it might have been as powerful but I mean just 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 sheer I mean you know I bought Ogden's Not Gone Flake with the old folding out sleeve and so on and so forth and it's a very patchy record occasionally really really irritating a whimsical East End psychedelia and occasionally it's one of like tons of brace up uh, I'd never like Reenie and songs like that they'd always piss me off then and they still piss me off now but when the small faces were good they were absolutely one of the best rock and roll bands this country's ever song played. of a baker yeah, yeah you know yeah. I mean it just just you know the, the, the sound was I mean the other thing is he talks about how bad they were Steve Marriott turned into a really decent guitar player I always love Robert, Robert Wyatt's taking the piss out of the way he sings, but it's like with a sort of degree of respect. I'm one great TV documentary because I yeah. couldn't do that. Sort of it's thing. sort of one of the great kind of blue-eyed, soul, yes. hard rock British voices. Isn't and it? you can always pick him out in other people's records. He yeah. sometimes sang backing vocals, and yeah. there's a yelp, and you just know it's him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, where where so, do you place the small faces in the context of, of like? British pop and rock in the in the sixties, you know, re- relative to the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, wh- where the small faces sort of fit into that, and is their their sort of trajectory similar? Does it parallel there? I mean, we sort of touched on this a bit, but does it does it parallel what they what they what happened to those how those groups evolved in the sixties? I think they were so mismanaged that that right. it's quite hard to get context on them. Yeah. They they were seen as teeny bot. marmalade type people but actually the quality of their musicianship and songwriting was higher and singing was higher and they were obviously cheeky chappies who set fire to things and (laughs) you know got hammered and the neighbours complained about artful dodgers so I think they weren't probably seen as being very cool but equally I imagine their peers like the Stones, who were always in and out of Olympic Mm. at the same time, would have recognised that you can't argue with some of the songs they were coming out with. Mm. But I think the the poverty, poverty may be an exaggeration, but the the fact that they had accounts at Taylor's but nothing in their pocket, probably ultimately ground them down and and got in the way of their development. They were sharing this house in Pimlico, and they were on 20 quid a week. In fact, ironically, I think when Ian McLagan joins, he says, I want to be paid the same, I don't want to be um, an employee, I want to be paid the same as you. And it turns out he, he got... 20 quid less a week by being a member of the band than he would have if he had just been sort of like... Right, a hired hand. Yeah, a hired hand. That's shocking. But Ogden's was a number one album for Mm. six 
weeks, yeah, I think. Yeah. Right. Ten Soldiers, that, a huge hit. But I mean, six was, weeks yeah, is a long time for a yes. number one in that era yeah. when, you know, you were always being knocked off the top by the sound of music or one of these sort of stalking horse, Indeed. mainstream My Fair Lady type things. Yes. But yeah, six weeks in a row or, yeah. or intermittently, that was a lot of records. But they were already fast starting to fall to pieces as a band. That was the thing. And I they, they, they lasted, already, yeah. what, um, eight months long, longer. They did one more album after And they did one gig on the Isle of Wight or somewhere yeah. to okay. promote Ogden's and it was all horrible. Right. And, uh, they, and they did as Alex Andrew Palisky was the, the right, was, so when was the last straw when, it, and he way, talks yeah. about this about walking off stage that, that that was the end of it then they did two he had to play two more gigs after that yes and that was that was the end of the band mm-hmm. and like I said you know forming Humble Pie with Peter Frampton he obviously doesn't really like Peter Frampton very much Peter Frampton was like his friend in inverted commas but very different uh, very very different characters yeah. and then it, you know he talks a lot about the drugs he didn't get on the rest of the band liked their psychedelics, so he didn't. He had some bad trips and left. He left Pimlico and got a flat in Knightsbridge, which everyone thought was awful posh bollocks, you know. I don't know, you, you know, a bit of him is... Him, I, I find a bit of him infuriating. It's almost professional cockney sort of malarkey. He sort of tends to go well, in He was for. a child actor. One always he, was he was, he was the Artful Dodger. Know, yeah. so he was the Artful Dodger for a year on stage. Yeah, all of yeah. It, you know. um, as was so Phil that's Collins. That's a big part of it. Extraordinarily. As was Phil Collins. As was Phil Collins. And, 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 and uh, as, as was Davy Jones of the, the Monkeys. Right. Then, uh, probably all in the same shows together at various yes. different stages. Did it? you like Humble Pie at all? Very much. And I think Humble Pie's misfortune was to be on immediate because although Andrew Oldham enabled all sorts of self-indulgence, which can be an asset on the records mm-hmm. and on the creation of them, it was such a haphazard company that yeah. the records weren't properly distributed, mm-hmm. there weren't proper arrangements in place abroad for buying the albums or for licensing them. And the, who took and the winds were just too much. So the, the Humble Pie's second record, which is called Town and Country, right. has just got a photo on the front of, I think it might be, Frampton and Marriott sitting on the floor in a sitting room and on the back cover it's got a picture of Jerry Shirley and um, Greg Greg yeah exactly um, Ridley sitting in a forest glade but there's no wording there's right. nothing to say humble pie to, what, yeah. I, Andrew Olden probably would have thought well this is fun we won't say anything on it Yes, but equally it's kamikaze and the band are the victims and they probably never saw the artwork until it was in the shops and they never thought what the hell's this so I think there was an unfortunate but I think they had just great Humble Pie and one of many bands like Free are another example that come to mind which just bizarrely don't seem to be listened to that much now. I mean I'm a huge Free fan Yeah, and their live album is one of the best albums all their records are wonderful Um, and and, and I think Humble Pie for some reason people think of them as being a bit naff or a bit throwaway but they're better than people might realise after Frampton left they became a slightly more reductive hard rock band on the American touring circuit. And you make Where a, they could make money. You could make a lot of money yeah. on the American touring circuit. They did mm. that live album, which Frampton is on, Fillmore, Rock in the Fillmore, which, yeah. which Frampton's the last, last gasp of Frampton's involvement in the band. And they were very good at that, but it was kind of boogie band. It was quite character. boneheaded. I mean, I, I only saw them once at Charlton in 74 and when The Who headlined, and I, I, I can't say I, I compared with... Well, even yeah. Lou Reed on that bill, who's awful but kind of fasc- fascinating. <laughs> I, I did think Humble Pie just, I mean, compared to something like Free, it just seemed very dumb to I me. I think something had happened in the interim called Cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, he does talk about that. Yes. You know, that, that, yes. that, that 
cocaine was his drug of choice. He said, oh, I don't do it anymore, you know, which yeah. may or may not be true in 85, yeah. we don't yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, and that was America. He said, yeah. you know, that was going to America. That's where the cocaine was. We didn't have cocaine in this country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the early Humble Pie records, the first one, Stick Shift, you know, they're fantastic, heavy, beautifully recorded, quite intense records without horns and yeah, yeah. trapping. You know, they're, they're, they're very I mean, the other thing is pure. that he returned, he, he's always a soul fan and the later Humble Pie is like a rock, is rock exactly. soul. The um, soul sort of gone. And I think like, cocaine don't, the don't, soul Doing endless versions of I Don't Need No Doctrine and things like yeah, that, yeah. you know, was was sort of... But anyway, look, I, yeah. I, I mean, bits of stuff that Steve Marriott has done over the years have been some of the, my favourite music come out of this country. Mick Drake liked Humble Pie. Did he? <laughs> No, I, I refuse to believe that. Shaky, yeah. One of his friends told me that with headphones on, Nick loved his headphones, and Shaky Jake was uh, one of his favourite fantastic I love tracks oh, to listen fun. to on headphones. He did like a lot of very different things you wouldn't have expected. Exactly. Nick, right? you, most you, you, musicians, you, you, most, of most course, musicians, musicians do. do. Of course. Can we briefly talk about another you know, very important figure from that period of British rock? Is Tony McPhee, yeah. who, who we who we lost last week, last week, ten days ago. Mm. Um, I just wondered what your take was on the Groundhogs, who whom we all revere and yes. think are fascinating, along with Stephen Mal- Malkmus and other yeah, and other people you wouldn't love expect Stephen to love the Groundhogs. Yeah, no. right, so what, what what do the Groundhogs mean to you? The Groundhogs, oh, well, I like them very much. Yeah. I think what's interesting about the Groundhogs is how massive they were. And they people pretty, might yeah. not realise that, yeah. but yeah, yeah they top, were top huge. ten albums, top ten, top yeah. five, yeah. selling out gigs everywhere. But Tony McPhee was almost like Lemmy; he was just a sort of unlikely yeah. rock star. He didn't look the part, and he didn't really care. You know, he was a bit balding. Most old articles about the Groundhogs, even from the late sixties, refer to the fact he's, he's losing his hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, poor bloke. The yeah. puns yeah. in the headlines about yeah. it. Uh, I mean. The, the, he was a really interesting guitar player. I mean, he started off basically as a straight blues guitar player. Well, often played back up on people like John Lee Hooker tours, which not country. just any old bloke could do. Absolutely. No. But when, with when he evolved the sound of the Groundhogs, at some at some points he, he's almost closer to Derek Bailey than Eric Clapton. For, you know, there's, there's there's a real noise, almost avant-garde weirdness to some some of his approach. Mm. But I thought they had a pretty sludgy rhythm section. I thought the problem with that. Well, there's band, so many different ones, weren't there? And no, well, there's, 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 there's a yeah. the classic trio. But also, that comes from him to some extent. There's a sort of on the beat sort of rigidity, which mm. just occasionally you think, God, you know, unlike Free, who had the funkiest rhythm section around. Yes. You know, the the, the yeah. Groundhogs were not funky. No, you no, know? No. Um, no. Very, but very powerful. Very, a, I, think. I think really interesting. Split, I think, is a really interesting Thank Christ for the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of interesting riffs right. and guitar parts yeah. and guitar sounds. And, and he wasn't one for wah wahs and, no. and fuzz. He, he played it quite straight, but still got a lot of different Yes, it's very yeah. clean, yeah. powerful hard rock yeah. sounds. Yeah. clean, it's not yeah. fuzzy. No. And, um, and he'd throw riffs in halfway through a song. Yeah. You know, he wasn't. He, a riff which for another band would have been like their biggest ever. Yes. Signifier. Yeah, yeah he'd throw it away. And, yeah. He'd just put it in the middle and then move on. Yeah. I think also something unusual about Tony McPhee, which is worth compliment him on is is that he was willing to be honest about his own mental struggles that's right and a lot of his songs split split being the obvious example but he was and and in interviews at the time he was very direct talking about the fact that things weren't okay with him well talking about interviews we mark added 
a Tony McFleet audio interview last week by John Tobler from 97, which is really good. And actually, I'm, I I felt like I really like yeah. this guy very much. Yeah. There's a real humility there. Yeah. And he talks about this terrible acid trip he he had right. and and about the split album and it's i mean it's really but, worth but, listening uh, he's to. an intelligent man yeah interesting man yeah i found so, myself in about 97 at an either a pavement or a stephen Mountmas gig <laughs> standing next to mcphee he was wearing oh, denims really? and uh, i think he might have opened actually oh. he may, may very well have done in which case um i would have watched it and just don't remember but he was standing next to me genial figure and so the music was loud but i knew exactly who he was when i saw him and I said something to him over the noise of music, and he could see I was just another yeah. Groundhog's person, but he beamed at me and reached into his denim jacket and produced a little badge. And oh. it said something like, I'm a Groundhog, or I can't remember. Oh, and he put it into my hand, but with a really genius... It wasn't yeah, a sort yeah. of patronising, here you go, piss off. It was very nice, and he sort of winked, but we were both listening to the band on stage, nice. and it wasn't a conversation <laughs> point. And then he oh, melted off brilliant. again. Yeah, I'm sure he nice. handed those out to the I'm sure he did, guys yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> At yeah. this point, Mark is going to tell us about some of the pieces yeah, well, he's most I'm, enjoyed well, adding. I, I will kind of try and be short. There's actually quite a lot of good stuff this week. Um, Odessa, being interviewed by Maureen Cleave of the Evening Standard in 63. I say this every week. Maureen Cleave is absolutely my favourite writer at the moment. She's so interesting. And she gets stuff out of these people. Odessa says, I was a coloratura soprano. Can you imagine that? I did a lot of oratorio. Then I became a contralto. Now I'm a baritone. My voice broke, you see. Most women's do, only it's not so noticeable to us as it is for the poor guys. Wow. Um, Never heard that before. And she says, there's as much bad folk singers as bad rock and roll. I can tell you, some rock and roll has such sense of humour. And I love Elvis Presley. I think he's beautiful. It's funny. I, 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 I love Nick that. Drake was also big on Odessa at school. He auction block was a big influence for him. Right. No more auction block for me. No more, no more. Mark Bowman, the great Chris Watts from 1970. This is still Tyrannosaurus Rex, but this interview you can t- this is a guy who's desperate to plug in you know i mean so what happened a year later is just there this is my first experience of rock came when i heard ballad of davy crockett by bill hayes my dad went out to buy me the record and got one by bill haley i was so disappointed until i heard the record so i threw bill hayes out the window and rocked i've been rocking ever since i got turned on to carl perkins when the shop flogged me his version of blue suede shoes because they had sold out of elvis presley i was really brought down then i played the record and rocked again <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says, Mark he rocks says, again he says we're thinking of going on at the festival hall with 400 watts each and freak them all out all the kids will come see freaky bowl and quietly doing his thing and then <laughs> what year is that this 70. is not 70. 70 yeah. so it's great this is yeah, what, pretty much uh, what happened right, right away uh, swan da- days we, yeah. we, we, we took out to lunch the other day the marvellous Jim Farber who finally agreed to become one of our writers and he, his review of Motorhead's No Sleep Till Hammersmith for Cream 81 and he says the best heavy metal is just kids out for a joyride a facetious studio rebellious adoration of destroying property and acting tough it's slumming and self, self-aggrandizing. Motorhead, on the other hand, through their, their completely unselfconscious music, expressed the angst of a seven-car collision, not as adolescent boasting, but rather as a direct summation of life as they experience it. 
Many will still insist on viewing them as a heavy metal band, even as yours truly did at first. But after one listens closely, it should be clear that their ultra-extreme style fits into only one broad category. Motorhead is an art rock band. <laughs> Which I think is just fantastic. What a great, it, great, it, great it, take. It, it's absolutely well, And it's great that so the first funny. Jim Farmer piece is, is about No Sleep Till Hammersmith, which is sort of the Rock Track Pages album, basically. <laughs> because um, no, there is no sleep, there is no sleep in, Hammersmith. in Hammersmith for us. And then this week, Robert Shelton reviewing. You know, Robert Shelton's known as a folk, primarily as a folk writer for the New York Times. But he he, he liked country music as well. He, he reviewed a bunch of country albums yeah. in 1965. He says most city folk fans eagerly accept early music of the golden age of country music prior to 1941 because of its closeness to folk and traditional roots. But these listeners are almost almost in league with jazz traditionalists who weep that jazz died in New Orleans, thereby dispatching everything since uh, since the origins. And this is kind of really an interesting point for someone who's perceived as a folk journalist to say in 1965, yeah. I think we'll, I'll skip the Mick Jagger to Maureen Cleave, this, you know, it's the usual Mick Jagger bullshit. Uh, Pete Townsend, <laughs> Wayne Robbins... Uh, Newsday, 1979. I'm unhappy a lot of hard rock fans took sister disco more literally. The hatred for disco could be a racist thing, and nothing could be worse. I used to listen to Tamla Motown rhythm and blues when I was young. To me, good music was black music. Disco is not made to analyse, it's made to be light and trivial. I don't like the idea of Studio 54, but I like dancing and I like discos. And this is right at the height of the disco sucks period you know and then lastly and terence trent darby to sylvia patterson the marvelous sylvia patterson so you will never hear it this is smash it's 1987 just when he was hitting with his first hits you will never hear a crap song from me because if i write a crap song which i have you will never ever get to hear it i'd, I'd have to be convinced of its merits before i could let it be worthy of my time i'm special and if people think that's arrogant why should I let that bother me? I'm not going to give anybody the power to be able to spoil my day. He says, after all, I'm young, so what am I supposed to think about except music and art and sex? And maybe nuclear disarmament to South Africa. And I care passionately about South Africa, but I'd be lying if I said I cared more about South Africa than I do about my art and sex. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so that's my the guy. <laughs> just what have you got for us? I'll just briefly mention a couple of things, first of which is... He's called Collective Inspiration in Jazzwise in February 2003. John Newey reports from New York on a celebration of 25 years of New York's legendary jazz drum and bass school, The Collective, and its video offshoots, DCI and Hudson Music. And what I found interesting in this piece was that one thing that they did around 1980 was they started videotaping masterclasses and clinics by visiting things which was at that point nobody had done that so mm -hmm. they, they got in really early Paul Siegel and Rob Wallace we videotaped a clinic performance by Bernard Purdy on borrowed equipment remember Siegel and that became the first release on Drummers Collective Inc. video DCI in 1982 we then followed up with videos of Ed Thigpen Lenny White and Steve Gadd a phenomenon was born just as home video was taking off worldwide. DCI rapidly became the leader in its field, documenting great performances with added instructional value. I just thought that was an interesting thing that, that at that point it became possible for people to learn from video, yes, yeah. which you know now is like any aspiring musician is learning from from 
equivalent video masterclasses, quote unquote, on <laughs> on on YouTube. You know, it's sort of interesting. And the piece also mentioned Steve Gadd and a performance from the Gadd Band with Mark. I know that you you share love for, for I, 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 Cornell I mean, Dupree. I never, and, saw, never saw stuff, but I saw the Gadd Gang play at Hammersmith Odeon, which was Cornell Dupree, Richard T. Yeah, Steve Berlin playing baritone saxophone, I think, and and Steve Gadd, and it was just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, Richard T is my favourite piano player yeah. in history. So. I mean, of course, Richard T had died at this point. For those, he was replaced by someone I can't remember who. But anyway, yeah, yeah just an interesting little piece from from Jazzwise. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was a piece, an interview with a group called Staff Bender Bilili, who are a Congolese group. It's a really interesting thing. It's Rob Fitzpatrick in the Sunday Times, and he speaks to them, and they've got this astonishing backstory where they're all paraplegic, and that you know, paraplegic polio victims from Kinshasa. And they they kind of get together and they play this mixture of Congolese rumba and with all these different sounds going into it. And it's they, they're interviewed and they're very warm and their attitude towards it is just incredible. It's just a nice. Can you hear their music? Is you, it can, yeah, you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. I was playing some of it yesterday. And it's you know I just I just thought it, I haven't got any quotes from it, but yeah, great. Thanks, Jasper. Thanks very much. Well. Subscribe to Rock Pages to read over 50,000 articles and hear over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. And of course, many thanks to our guest, Richard Morton Jack. Do rush out and buy his marvellous life of Nick Drake. We'll be back in two weeks with Robin Hitchcock in the guest chair. So till then, it's bye from me and it's bye from all of you. Bye. 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 That concludes episode 154 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Richard Morton Jack. Nick Drake, The Life, is published by John Murray Press and available now. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Hey.